0: you could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new hyundai santa fe visit hyundaiusa.com for more details hyundai there's joy in every journey
1: welcome into to the odds and audibles podcast i'm matt prime eric scopel on the show and today for our guest this week we're bringing on uh godux editor rob mosley uh, onto the show to get you ready for this. Washington-Oregon football game. Rob, thanks for coming on the show. How you doing?
0: I'm okay. No problem. Thanks for having me on.
1: It's Washington week. Um, I, I'm interested to know your perspective. Uh, I, I feel like these games are always important. They're always big. We always get, for the most part, good storyline, good games. Um, obviously, the Kenny Wheaton is like the easiest – the pick is the easiest one to pull here, but in your time covering this team, just what are some other moments or other individual performances or one performance that really just stands out to you um, in this game?
0: I was thinking about this cause I saw you, you talking about it on social media and such. And I, so much of, you know, our perceptions of all this stuff depends on the individual prism everyone's looking through. Right. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're a student, who moved here 10 years ago and didn't really have a sense of the rivalry before that, you might not even think Oregon and Washington are rivals. Um, You know, if you're someone who is, you know, of that age, but grew up here, you might know that your parents and grandparents didn't like Washington. So you have a little more of a sense for it, but it still feels pretty one-sided. You know, my freshman year at Oregon was 1994. So I was kind of like that, but older. Like I knew that Oregon fans didn't like Washington and there was kind of a rough tradition. But, you know, I was in the student section for Kenny Wheaton. And, you know, since then, it's it's been pretty good for the Ducks. So yeah. that's my perception. And then people older than me, you know, just remember Oregon getting their teeth kicked in for 20 years before that. And so it's different to them. And I think, you know, how uh, what moments you remember matter, too. You know, if you're older, Reggie Ogburn in 1980, you know, might still stand out in your mind. If you're younger, it's Jonathan Stewart in
1: 2007. Yep.
0: And, you know, me being kind of in the middle there, um, you know, I think when I, after Kenny Wheaton, I think of Pat Johnson in 1997 for sure, yeah. making, making that catch. You know, Oregon had jumped out to a lead, was a big underdog, but it jumped out to a lead. Washington came all the way back. Achilles Smith, who wasn't yet Achilles Smith, 1998 is kind of when he blossomed here. Um, but Achilles Smith hooks up with Pat Johnson. And Pat Johnson, who um, he had been a freshman when I was a freshman, we were the same age. And, you know, he was a guy who wasn't known for making catches like that. I mean, he was a track guy playing football. You know, his hands were, were pretty inconsistent earlier in his career, you know. And so 1994, 1995, you might not have guessed Pat Johnson was going to make that catch, you know, a couple years later. But he did and cemented himself in the, in the history of the, of the rivalry. So for me, that's a pretty easy number two, but I totally understand how generationally you you probably got I, I imagine you probably got answers all over the board yeah. on social media probably skewed I, I would bet on Twitter you got a lot more Jonathan Stewart's maybe even C J Verdell's and then on your message board you might have gotten a little more varied answer you know with a little bit of an older crowd
1: we actually didn't get a lot of C J Verdell which was really surprising yeah I, I think I mean that was in my time covering Oregon in the twelve years maybe a top five just moment play sure. of, of that. Um, I,
0: I, and I do want to give a shout out to Cyrus Abibilikio. I mean, his performance at UW a couple yeah. years ago, I mean, to me, he cemented himself in my memory in terms of this rivalry and just how clutch he was in helping helping cement that game and help Oregon hang on. I think for me,
1: um, it's, it's not one play. It's not one player. It is the 07 game but that's just because I remember watching it on TV and it's like the camera didn't even know where the ball was going. Right, right. And that that was the moment for me where it was like, oh, wow, Oregon is so far ahead of, of everything and from an offensive standpoint. mean Not even – the TV crews don't even know where the ball was going. So that's what stood out to me the most from that one was just, well, A, Jonathan Stewart had just a monster game. but right. Everything else that just came from it was just – awesome
0: and to watch in my eyes tony hartley in, in uh, 98 you know 240 some receiving yards i mean that's a guy that guy who just had a monster performance um you know i don't I'm, the game's not remembered for the same kind of drama even though it's a pretty close game it's 97 game and i you know i, I think t- tight games you know one-sided games like are really fun and i think we all think of that 2007 game as pretty one-sided yeah but those, those ones that lack the, that have the drama where there's like you know, a game-clinching, yeah. game-turning moment like the catch, like the pick, like CJ's touchdown uh, in overtime, um, you understand how kind of they conjure up a little bit more emotional reactions from people, for sure.
2: Maral, well, I'm just curious on your perspective on the rivalries dynamics because, again, it was 12 years of Oregon winning. I think 11 of those were three or more score wins and like pretty lopsided, but yet it feels like right now these teams are closer than they have been in a while. Um, and the animosity has continued. And obviously, from a Washington perspective, they had their two years. They had the two very lopsided wins, one with Justin Herbert sidelined. And I think that game probably is a little different if Braxton is not a quarterback, but that's an, a digression. We don't need to go down. What, what do you like? What stands out most about this animosity and this kind of the way these programs, like, because I thought it was notable? Kayvon Thibodeau, who's only played in, I think, one of these games so far, said you can feel the hatred in the hearts of the opposition from the fans, from the players, from from all of that, like, where does that, maybe, maybe this is a good place to start, where was your introduction into that rivalry, and kind of some of that back and forth between these two schools?
0: That's a good question, you know, because I don't really remember, you know, the honest truth is, when I arrived on campus, I didn't really have, I, I was, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, it was very much a pro sports area, so I did not have a great sense for just college traditions, college rivalries, things like that, so, I was learning on the fly, you know. It was probably, you know, the Keith Lewis, Cody Pickett stuff, mm-hmm. kind of in that, you know, what was that early two thousands? Yeah. You know, well, one maybe. Um, yeah, that 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 you know, when 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 the teams were sniping back and forth at each other um, publicly, you know, I think so, social media has just changed the dynamic on all that stuff so much. I mean, I think people are just so much more attuned now to not.
1: Not saying anything
0: thing. too inflammatory, you know it'll go viral and and then you become the story um, now the, to think about what Keith Lewis's Twitter account would have been like <laughs> <laughs> we, we probably missed out a little bit that probably would have been pretty or fun even like, yeah Twitter oh, was God.
1: There, it wasn't yeah Twitter no doubt. Yet.
0: Um, yeah so that's probably and, and you know professionally i've I've had to do a lot of research and stuff like that so I you know that that ingrained some of that stuff more from just sort of a research. It was more of an intellectual exercise than sort of an emotional experience sure. in those ways. So it's a little different than probably most fans. Um, you know, I don't, despite some of the comments we've seen this week, I just don't see it being anywhere near the level it was like, yeah, like 20 years ago. Um, just for a lot of different reasons. Again, you know, I think the media environment has changed um, and, and programs are more attuned to that and, and careful about how they handle themselves. Um, yeah, maybe the, the way the results have gone on the field the last couple decades. Um, and then just, yeah, you know, I think particularly for us at Oregon, um, the fan base has just exploded in, in sheer numbers, you know, in the last 10, 15 years and so and a lot of those fans just don't have again because all they know is oregon generally right. having the edge Exactly. there isn't that same sense of what what washington means to them they weren't getting bullied by washington in the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s before the tide turned so they just don't have the same the same sense of of, of that what that program and what the matchup has been over the years oregon is seven
1: and one on the year and i, I was thinking about this uh, yesterday and then also this morning of just everything they've had to go through to get there. Drew Mathis and Justin Flo going down week one against Fresno state Kayvon Thibodeau getting hurt and then not being available for the next couple of games. Swinson having his injury, uh, Bennett Williams, having his injury, their offensive coordinator having emergency surgery the day of a football game. Um, C.J. Verdell going down, and yet on the first week that the college football playoff rankings come out, they're number four. And, yeah, they have a loss, and it's it's to a, a Stanford team that has a losing record, but everything that, that they have aspired to have this season is still attainable. And just your thoughts on just the perseverance of this team and everything that they've had to go through, because – there's a, there's, there's a lot – Every injuries happen to everybody. But the stuff that Oregon has had to deal with this season feels different. And it's pretty darn impressive that even if the winds aren't as clean as we all want them to be, there's still – everything is still attainable for them.
0: No, it's it's been really, really impressive. I mean, the – you know, you see, you know, sometimes at the end of a practice, the guys who are currently hurt will, you know, will come out late, you know, or, or and walk by the media scrum, things like that. And, we, and when you see that just that parade of guys, you yeah. know, it really drives home, you know, the sheer number of guys that are out and then – but just the prominence of a lot of those players. Um, you know, there's a – you know, a tight end who's still – getting work as a rush end on defense there's a safety who's starting at linebacker there's a receiver who's starting at, or that was a first string safety you know after some injuries last week um and you know all those guys have been practicing at those positions you know so i'm oversimplifying there and overgeneralizing a little bit but you know that's when you step back for a second it's like man it's it's just wild um you know, I, I look at a guy like Ryan Walk. You know, what what did Ryan Walk expect to mean to this program in the 2021 season when he joined? He, what did the yeah. coaches expect him to mean to this program? What did the fans expect him to mean to this program? And what has he be what has he worked himself into meaning to this program? You know, I think that's it's just a credit to you know the culture is a word that maybe gets overused a little bit, and maybe some people roll their eyes at it, but it is a credit to the culture Mario Cristobal has created where. You know, I think when we talked to the Verone McKinleys, the Kayvon Thibodeaux, the Anthony Browns this week, I think they all pointed out just how even keel they are. You know, yeah. they don't get too high. They don't get too low. And I know that frustrates people sometimes maybe wanting to see a little bit more. You know, and Mario Cristobal is a guy who says, I thrive on emotion. You know, it's, you know he, he's a guy who maybe rides the roller coaster a little bit more internally. But he encourages his program, you know, to, 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 to be steady. And gets that out of those guys. And and when it's your leaders like AB and KT and Barone that are exemplifying that, you know, it helps you persevere through some things. Because, yeah, this is, I think we all think this program's meal probably a year or two ahead of schedule. And just in terms of the accumulation of talent, um, you know, the, the recruiting at the level Oregon has the last couple of years is amazing to expect to 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 reasonably expect to be in the national title hunt year after year, which is the goal, you probably have to stack a few more classes. Um, and yet, I think that Ohio State game just changed the trajectory of of for for a lot of people. I, I've actually been a little frustrated, particularly after the Stanford game, seeing some fan reaction. Like everybody knew this team w- you should win every game it played. Well. <laughs> Nobody was saying that in July or August, but the, Ohio, the winning at Ohio state just changed everybody's idea externally of what this program could be. Obviously the guys internally, you know, believe they could win every matchup and that's the attitude you have to have. And that's and not wrong. Um, but we all know how hard that is. And yet kind of the narrative changed about this program. Um, you know, it's still fair to say these guys might be overachieving a little bit, you know, certainly compared to like preseason expectations, but they've just captured you know a you know a maturity, an attitude, a work ethic, a you know that you know when you, you hear them spout that one and no process day after day, you know for all of us who have to quote people, it's like, oh, we're looking for a different quote you know from time <laughs> to time, but it's you know the, yeah. on the other hand, you have to be impressed with that level of discipline and that level of focus and what that says about kind of how they're going about their business every day.
2: Rob, I want to circle back around to some of the Joe Moorhead stuff and we talk, you know, it's, it's not obviously unusual at all to have a, a player go down with an injury and have to, I guess, unexpectedly figure some things out, some short-term solutions. This happened and I'm not asking you to share new information, obviously, but like this all happened like the morning of a game in a different state. And he was obviously expecting the coach cause he was down there. This didn't happen two days beforehand. How difficult is it for a team to, to, to kind of, Come up with solutions there because you can say you have a backup contingency plan for maybe your second string defensive back or something can enter because the first the starter goes down. Right. Very unusual to have to have a contingency plan for an offensive coordinator, a play caller, and a quarterback coach. I mean, how does that unfold from your perspective?
0: Well, you know, I think there's two sides to that. On one side, you know, part of that culture, part of that process stuff we talk about is kind of being prepared for any contingency. And you know, I. You know they do obviously. There's a a trigger man in terms of play calling, um, and that's Coach Moorhead. But it is a really collaborative process, I think, so that the staff feels going in that there's a sense that everybody kind of knows what the game plan is going to be. Yeah, there's some snap decisions that one guy's going to have to make, and those snap decisions might vary according to who's making them, and so that introduces some some variables there. But on the one hand, um, you know, yeah. I think you do like to feel like the process is collaborative enough that somebody else can slide in. And and I think for the most part, we've seen that on the other hand, you can't convince me, um, that Oregon loses that game if he's on the sideline. I mean, I just think, um, you know, perhaps that game came down to one play and you could pick about six different plays that were that one play. And you can't tell me that. Maybe there is a decision he makes that's different. That makes a difference. Maybe, the voice he has on the sideline, you know, with Anthony and the rest of the offense provides some sort of calm that, you know, they, they make one more play um, so that, that everything that happened defensively down the stretch um, isn't even a factor, you know, because, you know, the Ducks are up by another score or something. Um, you know, maybe at the end of the half, Joe Moorhead's there to say, hey, the pitch is going to be there, you know, pitch mm-hmm. the ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this these are all hypotheticals. I don't, you know, I don't know any of this for a fact. But I just, <laughs> I believe deep down that if Joe Mooreheads on the sideline that day, that's the in a game with that slim a margin, that makes a huge difference. So, and it's just, yeah, it's you know, you know, you want to talk about things I haven't really encountered in 25 years of doing this. Yeah, I mean, having having that happen, and, and there's still being some lingering effects in terms of you know him not being back on the sideline yet you talk about things you don't expect to encounter during the season. I mean, maybe the number of injuries this year to personnel feels unusual, but in the game of football, you just expect that, some, you know, unfortunately some guys are going to go down and some other guys are going to have to step up. You don't expect that to happen to a coach the way it has. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's as impressive as anything, I think, that the way, you know, some of the other staff members, you know, Nate Caso, you know, we're able to step in and try to pick up some things and just kind of keep the machine rolling. Cause it's such a, I mean, there's so much going on in the day-to-day operations of a program in the offices, on the practice field, all this, you know, something like having your offensive coordinator in in the hospital for surgery has the chance to be an enormously upsetting uh, thing. And to the credit of a lot of other people, um, you know, with the exception of the Stanford game, unfortunately, um, I think things have kind of kept chugging along, um, as you know, as you might hope, so it's uh, that that's that's been really impressive.
2: I would just point to the I just really sorry. One second, Matt. I just would point to the fact that Anthony Brown had by far his worst game without his offensive coordinator, and you've seen since such a step up in play that right. I think you can reflect back and call into question the impact of ab- right. Moorhead's absence.
0: For for, his, for we talk about that calming presence Anthony has, and uh, you know that's only amplified by Joe Moorhead. I mean, that's as chill a dude as Joe come across in the college football coaching ranks or at least you know that i have you know are, are up there and i you know i just you know they, they they they, i think he helps reinforce that even more with anthony just like hey just calm down you're in control you can do this you can make plays um and yeah how you know how much did we potentially miss that with the entire offense you know it's those false starts late in that Stanford game, all that, you know, it just seemed like a unit that wasn't quite clicking on all cylinders. Um, So, yeah, that was disappointing for sure.
1: I think the part that all of that that gets lost the most, and I've done it myself, is just the human element. Like someone someone you're around great point. day for hours, all of a sudden is on the surgery table for emergency surgery, and you have to go play a football game. And where is your – your mental space going to be at i mean that that's something that we haven't that doesn't get enough run going into that game
0: no um, doubt if you know if you have a you know a quarterback who maybe looks back on a few of his own decisions and is like ah, i might have made a different decision if you have a couple of different players who are like yeah i was a little distracted you could see on those false starts i was a little yeah. distracted well of course they were <laughs> <laughs> exactly. yeah that's that's just a heavy thing to deal with particularly at that age you know yeah. you don't know, Sometimes the kind of the naivete of youth can help you in a situation like that, but sometimes you know, kind of Another not way. having the emotional intelligence that life grants you, yeah, it can, it can be, it can hurt you. You know, it can. So, yeah, that's 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 a great point.
1: Let's go to this game. Um, defensively, looking at at this Oregon team, just what interests you to see how this is going to play out against this Washington team who at times has looked solid. At other times, they've really struggled to be able to move the ball.
0: Well, I think, you know, one of the biggest pleasant surprises about this Oregon team is the play of the interior defensive line. I mean, I think for a lot of people, maybe the biggest question mark about this team coming into the year was, you know, losing Jordan Scott, lose, losing Austin Fallyu, um, you know, what where guys like Popo Amavai and Keon Ware Hudson and Christian Williams, you know, ready to step in. I think Brandon Dorlis, there was a sense that he was kind of ready to pop a little bit, but, um, and those guys have just been great. You know, they've just been really, really solid. Um, you know, they're not piling up a bunch of stats, but they've been really solid. So, you know, can they continue? I mean, with the, what the weather looks like it's going to be and just the nature of, of of the the teams involved. I expect to see a lot of running plays Mm -hmm. um, uh, on Saturday evening. So uh, um, does that run defense hold up? And then, you know, I think we've seen as the, as Oregon's linebackers have been, you know, there's been some attrition there. We've seen some teams try to test them, particularly in the passing game, you know, with tight ends and short crossing routes, things like that, you know, that seems to be in line with what Washington wants to execute offensively. So, you know how does how does that area hold up defensively as well?
2: Just the other side of the ball. Then we just you just spoke to a little bit about kind of what Oregon needs to do on that side. What do you kind of see? I mean, because statistically, this is a Washington defense, which is the best nationally against the pass. And I, I've gotten get, some pushback on that. I wrote a story about that today. People point out the fact that well, part of that is that the run defense has been pretty bad, and a team like Michigan didn't need to throw the ball. I think had less than fifty yards passing because they ran the ball all over the place. Um, But this is a team that has at times played a little bit better, I think, collectively defensively than maybe they're given credit for and is still, I believe, still the top scoring defense in the conference. So what what do you kind of see here for Oregon? And as you say, I think the weather and just stylistically, I feel like a lot of run plays being had here. Is it as simple to say if Oregon can consistently win with its offensive line in the trenches that there should be some success to be had, in your opinion?
0: Well, I mean, I think – any program would say if they think that they, you know, one of the foundations to trying to mount a winning effort is yeah, being able to establish the run. So from that sense, for sure. But yeah, I think to your point, I'm just fascinated to see what the play calling looks like and, and how the weather does and doesn't affect that, you know, just what Oregon thinks it's offensive identity is at this point, based on the way things have been going, regardless of the opponent, just based on the way things have been trending the last few weeks. Do you feel like you can open it up and th- continue to throw it? Um, Does the matchup uh, compel you to run the ball more? Does the weather compel you to run the ball more? I think I'll I'll be fascinated to see kind of what Oregon's coaching staff has determined to be the best way to try to attack this defense and try to move the ball based on all those different variables. And I just, I don't know what the answer to that is going to be. And, and, you know, until we get up there and actually see what the weather's like, maybe nobody really knows what exactly what the answer is going to be, but um you know, I, th- I think I'm not alone in being pretty, feeling pretty good about the balance of this offense right now, feeling yeah. like based on the last couple weeks, you know, Anthony Brown and those receivers, they can get it done through the air. And despite the, the loss of C.J. Verdell and, and Alex Forsyth not being available, um, the offensive line has held up really, really well. I mean, they're just week over week lineup changes, and they still are getting it done um, and, and, and able to run the ball. You know, Travis Dye is obviously a warrior. But, you know, Cardwell and McGee, some of the flashes they've been showing, you know, you just, but can you keep that rolling? I mean, every week is its own week in this sport and you just, you know, narratives can change, opinions can change, you know, projections can change so much, you know, it's what makes, makes this sport fun and maddening and all the rest. And then you've got the ranking on top of it and it's like, you know, these, these next few weeks have the potential to be just agonizing, just, you know trying to just make it through each week and, and, and stay in the picture.
1: Travis Dye, I think he's going to have an important role every game, but especially in this one. But I think he's probably going to go down, whether he chooses to come back to school next year um, or if this is his last, we don't know, but i are not going to speculate that. But I think it's safe to say, in my opinion at least, he's going to go down as one of the most underappreciated guys on the offensive side of the football um, from a fan perspective. Just your thoughts on just his importance and the level of play that Oregon's getting out of him when he's never really been asked to do this in the three previous years until now.
0: Well, depending on how the next, you know, few weeks go and then yeah, potentially what happens next year. I, I think he has a chance to be remembered kind of like Kenyon Barner was. Yeah. I mean, a it's guy exactly who – if he'd been the guy year over year, his production could have been off the charts, but he was totally content. He was a team first guy. He was content to to share the load or even take a back seat a lot of times earlier in his career. He was always ready when he was called upon. And from like a personality leadership, you know, joy for the game point of view, just a deeply, deeply respected and appreciated guy within the, the walls of the locker room too. So, you know, I, and I I think the fans are really getting an appreciation for that. um, These last few weeks, but also, you know, with the shout stuff and all that, just the joy for the game. This guy brings and that's every day. I mean, that's every day in practice, you know? I mean, I, I, on one hand, you're always kind of worried, like, every single day. Hey, can everybody keep their focus? Can everybody keep this mentality? Can everybody – I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. On the other hand, when you have guys like Travis Dye or, you know, Jalen Reds or Verone and some of those other guys, on the other hand, you kind of don't worry because you feel like there's always guys who just every day are psyched to be out there, psyched to be practicing, um, you know, psyched to be with their brothers, you know, to go, going to work. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just – I'm glad to see – I think a, there's an appreciation growing for Travis and what he means to this program um, as a leader, not just as a, for the production he's brought um, and, and how much that means.
2: Rob, I just wanted to ask you before we wrap up just a little bit about the team dynamics because I think you can speak to that better than even we can. You know, you, you're around the program. You're able to watch practices. You, are, you just have more access than we do in terms of knowing these players and this team and kind of what they're like. And specifically, I wanted to ask you about Anthony Brown because obviously he's a very polarizing figure for the fan base. I think, again, as somebody who's not around him as much as you, but is around them more than the, the, the fans are, you see how much this team cares for him and how much he is such a central figure. I think it's notable that just even when he's about to do his, his media scrums and, and do interviews, how many players are you know cheering at Anthony and, and seem like they're supporting him. That sort of dynamic is not lost on me this is not a guy who's been around for five years to develop that. He's only been the starter, really, in name since the fall, even though in the spring I think it was clear it was headed that way. What 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 is kind of your perspective on how Anthony has accomplished that and what kind of a person is he to do that? Because I think it's pretty notable just how much through some really ups and downs of this season, it seems like everybody has kind of stayed steadfast in his support.
0: Yeah, I just think he just makes such an effort – to maintain like a constant sense of connection with all the various guys. I mean, I've, I've never covered a quarterback, you know, I was at most practices in, you know, between like 1999 and 2010, you know, when everything was pretty open, you know, and I've been at most every practice since 2013 when I started doing this job. And I've never seen a quarterback Who's in more constant communication with guys on the sideline after plays, before plays? I mean, he every time he leaves the field after practice, he seeks somebody out. Hey, what did you see there? What was the assignment there? What was the call? Was there an adjustment you tried to make? Here's what I was looking for. I mean, he's just constantly in the mix with guys, um, you know. And 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 you know, we've had. Quarterbacks with a lot of different personalities over the years. You know, Justin was a quieter guy. Marcus, for the most part, was a quieter guy, um, which is not to say they did didn't do some of that. Um, you know, Vernon Adams was a really outgoing, energetic guy. But I I recall him being just a little. It was just a little bit more, almost like a cheerleader dynamic. Like you know he he was connecting with guys, but you know it was just you know keeping everybody pumped up, keeping the energy high, things like that. I mean, Anthony is just constantly talking football with guys and talking through the last rep and just, um, you know, just, yeah. What did you see? Here's what I saw. Here's what the call was. What adjustment should, you know, did you make whatever, you know, I'm not privy to every, every, you know, word of every conversation they're having, but it's, you know, they're, they're talking football stuff. So I just think there's a, I get the sense there's a respect and appreciation for just how dialed in he is to every single other guy and what's going on with them and, you know, how, um, how he can help them, what he needs from them, what what you know what they could what they can do for him um, to make sure everybody's on the same page and everything's clicking, um, and so from my sense that might be the root of some of that, um, and j- you know just and then you guys see just the poise he handles himself yeah. with, mm-hmm. um, you know again he's not filling up our notepads with uh, some of the most some of the best quotes we'll get all year, but it, again in some ways that's to his credit you know that's just the ma- the poise and the maturity that he exudes and i think um guys guys are attracted to that as well guys follow that as well because this is it's such an interesting age cohort i mean the the maturity levels relatively speaking are all over the map you know um and, and he's a guy who you know he's a grown up he he brings sort of an adult uh, an adult presence that i think guys uh, guys respond to and rally to
1: oh i think to Amy's credit, probably wish he never did it, had to do it, but he did give us the best quote of the year so far uh, with his "I played like shit" comment after after Stanford.
2: <laughs> right, <laughs> that made uh, the
1: book. That made I, mean, I think that takes while to say that, and you know, he did say, "Pardon me. my
0: language." We, you know, we should include that context as well. <laughs> but yeah, no, no doubt. He, the ownership he took. I mean, obviously people were frustrated with how he played that day. He was frustrated with how he played that day. And the ownership he took was yeah. just one of for me a zillion examples of, of why guys respect him and rally behind him and why he's the leader of this team.
1: Well, Rob, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. We will catch with you catch up with you up in uh, Seattle and uh we'll talk to you talk to you soon. Thanks for coming on yeah. the
0: show. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me on.